the SF Music Tech Summit, recorded live by Media One Audiovisual. To learn more about us, visit us online at MediaOneAudio.com. So we're going to talk about music or technology or both. Uh, we're going to talk. We're going to start with one foot in music and, and cross over to technology halfway through. Okay. And we'll, we'll see if you notice the transition. Okay. So uh, let's let's talk about music. Uh, the Presidents of the United States of America. That was my band, was uh, band, which still exists. So it was a band that formed in the mid-90s and had a bunch of top 40 hits and sold four or five million records. And we broke up and then regrouped in the early 2000s. And, and uh, I quit touring about five years ago because it just, it's not a very healthy lifestyle uh, in any way, shape, or form. And I thought the previous panel, they got into that a little bit in the... There's some artists on the panel. Uh, but the band still plays. They just headlined Bumbershoot, a uh, fast, big festival in Seattle. And I was always the business guy in the band and uh, the default business manager, even though we've had accountants and attorneys and other people in our team. I was the guy who, who made sure that you know we actually, the guys in the band made money. There are a lot of people with their hands out in that value chain. So I was the guy who made sure we had some margin at the end of the, end of the deal. And that's kind of how I ended up. You know, I don't want to get to technology before you want yeah, to get no, into no, technology. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Not yet, not yet. Okay. So the, making sure the band got money and you were always in that role. So now you're talking about in the 90s, working with a label. Um, we were at the height of it. Yeah. I mean, we were on uh, every major label at that time wanted to sign us. Um, we ended up on, we came down to Sony, a Sony label, Columbia versus a, a WIA label, um, Maverick, which was Madonna's label, part of Warner Brothers. And we basically just decided, we wanted to sell as many records as we could, and so we looked at Sony, had really the best global distribution at the time, and we thought, they believe in us, they, they know how to move, is such a different world. They was literally, who's best at moving these physical objects to different locations and putting them on a shelf where people will grab them and then pay money for them. So we felt like they were the. We felt like there was enough buzz about the band and the industry at the time that the marketing would probably take care of itself. But who can execute this very difficult logistical challenge of how do you merchandise and and uh, distribute the the physical objects? And so with physical, you've got breakage. Uh, you, oh yeah, you've got uh, whatever you have to give away for free. Uh, yes. So break that down for us. How how that system worked. So that I don't, you know, the the way the music business worked previous to the transparency of digital um, was uh, pretty. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know how many people in here are music business insiders, but. Uh, sort of a whole bunch of contractual precedents that were all against the artist. Hey, Jeff. Um, and it really was set up to screw the artist in every possible way. And, and that's, that was intentional, and there were also just uh, mechanisms in place that generally favored the people who created the mechanisms. So the result was that you could, um, you know, at the time we sold 5 million records. I remember, I think it was TLC sold 5 or 6 million records, and the girls were all bankrupt. And that's part, partly due to their own immediate management team but part of it is you know if you're an artist and you sell a record for 15 bucks and uh, you're going to get you're going to see about um if you have a you know average record royalty you're going to see two bucks of that and you might get another buck if you wrote all the songs and that's but but that money has to all that money has to come through the label and they have all sorts of hurdles triggers in place where they can stop that flow of money 
and um, trim little bits here and there and, and tell you why they shouldn't pay you. So I guess you know the, the long the, the end game for us and one of the, the things that one of the things that got me out of being an artist was uh, so we'd sold a bunch of records. We had gotten our, asked to be dropped from Columbia because one of my bandmates freaked out and started to just didn't want to be. He realized that when you're under contract to a major to a record label, small or large, they own what they own is anything you record during that contract. And he realized that every little dictaphone demo he made was owned by Sony Music Entertainment. It freaked him out. So we get to the end of that whole process, and we any artist that sells more than a few hundred thousand records will audit their record label. We audited Sony. Uh, and EMI, which was our publishing company at the time. And I have no beef with Sony. It was a great partnership. I mean, we all made a lot of money, and, and it was a beautiful thing. But they owed us a million bucks. So you hire Moss Adams or one of the other big accounting firms. They send their guys to 550 Madison Avenue every day for a month. You pay them 20 or 30 grand. They come back a month later and say, even without interest, these guys owe you a million bucks plus. And then you go back to Sony and you say, well, you owe us a million dollars. Simple things, breakage, you know, you didn't pass through these payments in time. And they say, we owe you nothing. And then 18 months later, they know you're not going to spend $300,000 to sue them to get an extra $50,000 in your settlement. Three months later, you settle for, you know, 25 cents on the dollar. And that was the moment where I really realized, I don't want to do that. I, at that time, there were some labels who wanted to sign me as a solo artist, and I just thought... We were about as successful as you can be without getting to the super A-plus artist level. I don't want to be in a business where even if I do everything right on my end and I'm super successful, I just can't get the money through the, the payment channels. So it, uh, the flip side was we had a, a band, a product that had all sorts of buzz, and we found a partner, Sony Music, that could execute, and we achieved incredible economies of scale, and we got to play our music and share it with millions of people, and that wouldn't have happened without that system in place. Uh, and it's harder to do that now, I think. So on the flip side, uh, you know, now they've, for streaming and other, actually, I went to the digital. Nice. Well, We're going to the technology part, um, You know, there's, so there's statutory um, licenses and there's fees, but Sound Exchange, for instance, hasn't been ex especially great at getting money to artists. Um, has that changed? Uh, in some ways, things are much more transparent. We happened to own our first record, which was by far our biggest hit and the bulk of our sales, and we had licensed it to Sony, and their license reverted to us in 2003. So we have a deal directly with iTunes for that record. We get 70 cents on every dollar for every track we sell. And we do the rest of it through IOTA, who I assume are represented here somewhere, one of the big digital indie aggregators. So that part's great. Our, our iTunes sales, um, I get a statement every month that has every song we sold in every territory, and I get a check, and it's very simple. Um, the, you know, the performance royalties are very, very hard to figure out when and where you're supposed to be paid correctly. And, and I think a lot of that is it's not maliciousness on the part of sound exchange or any nefarious intent. It's that, I mean, the, the volume of data that they have to deal with to match content use to the people who own the content or perform to create the content is it's an, a truly impossible task. No one's ever going to solve that completely. As we were talking before, <clears throat> you know, we, we looked at the 90s at the time when, uh, when you, you know, became a name as a band and, and you, I almost got the sense that you looked at that as an anomaly, and that um, you know that now I think you said we might be returning 
to how the music industry was. Can you explain what? I, there's just less money flowing through the the music business. One thing people don't outside the industry don't understand is that so Napster's horrible. Sure, it, it cut everybody's legs off who had a, made a living dealing with musical IP, but the industry was in this incredible peak at that time because of the CD era, people buying back catalog on CD, the margin was higher on CD. I mean, it was literally like a fire hose of cash in the industry at that time. And, um, and so there was a lot of money to build brands. And of course, the labels put all the, all the brand equity went into their artists, not into... The labels have no brand equity. Nobody gives a shit about Columbia Records. That I, you know, I don't go buy a record because it's on Columbia. I buy a record because I like Bob Dylan, right? Um, so there are some artists who are still writing that. And my bandmates can, you know, my bandmates can still go out and get a gig for an Xbox party for twenty-five or thirty thousand bucks because they have a brand name that somebody else paid for. That's gone. That's much harder to do now. The upside is you can. On, on the flip side, there are ways to be a cottage industry, um, and my bandmate, the bald guy from the Presidents, Chris Ballou, is like the, the poster child for Music 2.0 using technology. He has a studio in his backyard, which you couldn't do, you know, 15 years ago. You couldn't have a two-inch Studer tape deck out there in your, in your 8 by 10 shack, you know, and a full SSL console. And he has the equivalent in digital, you know, for less than $5,000. A nice microphone, a nice signal chain, and uh, he makes music back there. He sells it through Pump Audio and others. He's, uh, you know, makes a lot of money doing uh, music for film, TV, and advertising. He has a kids' music alter ego that he completely does out of his house, where he makes a new record every nine months and presses them up and sells four or five thousand copies. Um, does all his marketing and plays hundreds of gigs a year with this kids' music alter ego called Casper Baby Pants. So. Uh, I do think he's a very smart guy, very hardworking. I mean, it's mm. that what's not there anymore. There were people who did succeed in the industry in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Usually not for very long. Usually not for more than an album or two. Who were the kind of brain dead? Hey man, I'm just a rock star. Show me, show me the stage. You know, show me the money. Those people usually ended up broke, but there were people like that who did sell millions of records. You can't do that anymore. You have to be. Completely have to be the architect of your own um, of your own mansion. You know, you got to you got to design, you got to conceive it, you got to design it, you got to build it, you got to vacuum it every day, you got to do all those pieces. So, I mean, <clears throat> when I hear that, I think you've got to tweet, you got to post to Facebook, you got to do, you got to engage in social media and constantly be sort of accessible to I, I don't think that stuff's that important. Okay, I mean, so there was a I'd panel in here that, before actually. about social media. I think you have to be really, really good at making music. Yeah, you have to manage your business well. You have to market yourself. I don't think being omnipresent in social media is going to make or break you. Is, uh, it, is it maybe antithetical to the creative process, or is it just a, Well, certainly, a there's only so many hours in the day, right? I mean, and to get your 10,000 hours, if you're a craftsperson, I just saw Joe Satriani walk in. If you're someone who's really a master of your craft, that takes a lot of time and psychic energy to, to do that. I mean, it takes an incredible amount of, of emotional and spiritual energy to, to draw real music out of yourself and to really connect with an audience. So that's still... People will always respond... You know, if I walked in here and said, hey, I'm Dave from the President's, and I started tweeting to all of you, 
Yeah, but if I walk in here with a guitar and start playing a song, I'm going to connect with some of you, and that connection is going to be true. It's going to be in your heart. It's going to be durable and authentic. So, I think that that part of it is way more important than than the social media stuff. And I definitely agree with you on that, and the the, the authenticity of you know a real world experience is so much more valuable than this virtual reach, right? However far and wide it may be doesn't seem to be where the trend line is going. Well, I think it is. If you see the artists that break through, aside from the Keshas, the artists who break through and they're on TMZ or Perez Hilton, if you look at like Mumford & Sons or the Head in the Heart from, who came from Seattle or Fleet Foxes or even just this young hip-hop artist in Seattle, Macklemore, who's just killer. And nobody outside of the 206 has heard of him, but every 15-year-old in the greater Seattle area has five Macklemore songs. On their, on their iPod, and it's because the guy is just, he's an amazing performer, and he connects with people, and he'll grow that. You know, he could probably have a regional career for a decade, or it could explode, but it will be built on something real, you know. So I, I do think that it, one of the interesting things about this era is there is a return to quality in some ways, and a return to live performance. I mean, think of, I think uh, um, it just, the economics of making a record, even if you're a big artist, don't work very well anymore. Uh, Duff McKagan um, from Guns N' Roses is an old friend. We grew up in the same neighborhood in Seattle, and um, he, uh, you know, he has this band Velvet Revolver now with Slash, and Scott Weiland was in it. And their first record did really well. It came out in, uh, sort of at the tail end of people selling lots of CDs. It sold three or four million copies worldwide. And their next record sold in the hundreds of thousands. Now, arguably, maybe not as good a record, but they just look at it when you're an artist like that well it takes them a year to make a record which it shouldn't and it costs 500,000 or a million bucks and then it costs a million or two million bucks to market it he, they look at that and then they go okay well even when Scott Weiland they kicked him out and they didn't even have him in the band they were getting festival offers in Europe for $250,000 or more it doesn't take very long to do that math if you're those guys so um, the you know, you, but then you can record when, if and when you want to. That's the fun of technology, right? You can pick and choose, and if you're at that level, you could put out a song a day every week for two weeks, and you have your double album, right? Nobody's I, fully exploited it yet. I think the, the IFPI put out a statistic recently that you know, it was something like $4 million they had calculated it takes to break a major act. Um, it doesn't seem to resonate with... With kind of this, uh, you can record in your in your backyard, and you can. Uh, yeah, you, it's funny. Down. Yeah, maybe four million dollars, and you make it or you don't. But then I mentioned my bandmate Chris, who's you know doing his music placement. He had an advantage, of course. We did have this brand va- value that Sony had invested the money in, that was a platform for him to build from. But he kept doing the hard work, and he makes he makes a lot of money now. He makes more than most senior executives in technology companies make a year, probably, doing these three little cottage industries he has. They're all just based on his uh, smarts and, and diligence and organization and hard work. So um, You can't get around the, the hard work part. No, you honestly, can't get around it? the hard work. It was, I, was reading, I was reading the New Yorker on my way down here, and there was a, uh, an article about the, who's that asshole who wrote the four-hour work week? Well, that guy works like 80 hours a week, right? I mean, the guy's a total workaholic, of course, you know? Yeah, there's no getting around the hard work. But you know, it's like my grandpa said, you know, David, anything worth doing is hard. 
That's true. That you is need, true. If you want to be good, you got to work hard. Grandpa was right after <laughs> no, all. No, he was. Um, I would love to open the floor up if anybody has a, a question for, for Dave Dieter. So what are you doing now? Uh, now I, uh, about, I, I went kind of back into normal work about 10 years ago doing PR and public affairs, which is what I'd done in my 20s. And uh, then five years ago, I joined this uh, digital music startup called Melodio. Doing, working on all sorts of stuff, and we sold ourselves to Hewlett Packard a year ago. And I am, I now work for the actual man. I'm one of 325,000 Hewlett Packard employees, and it's it's pretty amazing to have that kind of footprint and uh, weight. So hopefully, we've got some great music products coming in the next six to 12 months. So I want to make sure we have plenty of time for uh, Joe Satriani, and uh, I. Really enjoyed talking to you. It's a pleasure. So, uh, Thank you. I hope we can do it again. Nice sometime. job covering music and technology. Uh, yeah, I didn't. Uh, you I caught it. Killer. Thank you for Dave Dieter. Thanks. <laughs>